Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, another vaccination, this time Johnson & Johnson on the horizon. A growing number of Canadians say the Prime Minister is doing a bad job on vaccine rollout. Do you know what line five is? We'll explain it to you. Stay tuned. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Now they want Canadians to postpone their second COVID-19 vaccine shot for up to four months. And I get heck for postponing my shower by only a couple of days. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Lots of vaccination news today. J&J, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, has been approved by uh, Health Canada, which is uh, great news. That means the fourth vaccine that's available. Uh, However, an arrival date, uh, all we're getting at this point is the fall, September. So uh, whether that bumps up or not, we're not sure, but uh, still waiting for uh, more confirmation on all of that. Let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, Assistant Professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi. So your thoughts, Doctor, on where we are today with uh, the announcement that J&J's vaccine has been approved by Health Canada. It's actually great news. Now we have a variety of different vaccines out there, and they all can be used as a part of a mosaic to help give us appropriate coverage. I think one of the more exciting things about this is that by having this additional technology, it's, it's actually similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine, and but it has some fundamental differences. It's based on a slightly different platform. Uh, so some components that they used to build it are, are different, but essentially it's very similar. And what's also interesting is that it, right now it's a single-dose vaccine. They might later on decide to make it a two-dose if they find that makes it work a bit better. But with this, we're going to have a lot more supply from a lot more suppliers, and that should help get more people immunized faster when it does come in. You you talked about the one dose, and I I had read something yesterday that that suggested that this was specifically designed as a one-dose vaccine. Lots of people have been talking about these different types of vaccines. If we were to choose one, which one would be best, efficacy and all that sort of thing. But you brought up a very valid point that I'm hearing more and more of. Uh, Just because there's difference in efficacy here and and because there is a wide uh, range of different types of vaccine with these first four, that that... uh, that, that suggests they could very well have specific situations that they're implemented in, that they're inputted into, and, and, and it very much becomes a, a, a niche kind of thing, uh, so to speak. So th- there are places for all of these vaccines, I guess is the point that I'm making. I agree. I think that's a, an excellent way to put it. And I would like to maybe bring up another point as well. For this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, there are a lot of folks that are curious about what makes it different or indeed why we even need vaccines. I've heard a lot of people ask me this, actually. Is COVID really that deadly? Do we need to get vaccinated? Well, it's, you, should, you should look at it from this perspective as well. Not only are we preventing deaths, but we're also looking at preventing severe disease and that we don't want people to need to go to the hospital. We need to keep those hospital beds available. 
for emergency use, not everybody's going to have COVID. Some people will come in from a car accident. Some people will need emergency surgery. So we need to make sure that our healthcare system is able to handle more people coming in. So by reducing severity of disease through vaccination, not just preventing death, we can really help ensure that our hospital system doesn't get overwhelmed. And and with this Johnson & Johnson vaccine that's coming in, they while they may appear to have a lower efficacy, there's more reasons behind that. But while it appears to have less efficacy, it's actually quite good at reducing severe disease. And that's really an important target that we're looking at. And well, I remember way back... Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was going to mention that with these new trials that are happening now, remember, there are new variants of coronavirus that are coming out. So as trials progress, they're now enrolling people, and these people are exposed to many different variants. So it's a moving bar. But what we're seeing is that we're still seeing a reduction in severity of disease. And that's really great. And I remember uh, back at the beginning of all of this, before the vaccine was even uh, when it was still in its trials and such, uh, many were saying if we can get anything above 60 percent efficacy, that would be considered a win. And uh, I guess just spoiled by the new uh, Pfizer and and Moderna's Uh, getting back to the first dose. um, You know, many have said that the first dose obviously does um, uh, provide some uh, efficacy. Uh, You know, we're seeing the delay in in Canada now uh, with up to four months for the second dose. Uh, what is the difference with the Johnson & Johnson? Are, are, are they concerned how long this will last with it being just one dose? Or as you suggested, do you, do you th- and I think, I'm sure this is with all vaccines or, or with a lot of them, that you're going to need some sort of booster uh, later on with these? It'll be similar to what we see with the flu vaccine. They are changing every season and we will have to get new vaccines for that. That's what we've been seeing with this coronavirus as well. So there, there, that very well may happen that Johnson & Johnson will start looking at other dosing regimes. And it's a great way to bring up AstraZeneca again, because originally they were looking at a single dose there. But in December, they were wrapping up a really big phase two, phase three trial around the world. They looked at over 17,000 volunteers who took this vaccine. And in that trial, they compared single dose, and then they also compared two doses. And they also looked at spacing out those doses. And they actually found that if they waited 12 weeks, they got a really incredible reduction in the severity of disease. Mm-hmm. So that was you know, the rationale behind this. So a lot of folks are now looking at that because with new variants coming in, and we want to keep your antibody titers high. Maybe the second dose for Johnson Johnson will also help with that. But again, that this is this is the, the an interesting point to make is that these trials have happened and then they're also ongoing. And yeah. all these health authorities are using looking at the data real time. Usually we wait and wait till everything's all done and wrapped up and then we start looking at data. Right now, everybody's looking at it in real time and using best judgment to make decisions on policy. And I think that's what a lot of these uh, things, including Canada, have been looking at. They're actually looking at this clinical data that's coming out. And the clinical data that's coming out, it's not just for a single variant. These different places around the world, the UK, Brazil, South Africa, they all have different variants. So 
these vaccines are being tested against these different variants at the same time. It's, it's, it's really great that people are paying attention and looking at the data and making informed decisions. And, and you know, that, that's something we've talked about over the last year in regard to this pandemic is how people are working together, how various institutions, silos are coming down, and, and, and the speed of all of this happening has just been remarkable. How do we balance? Because there's lots of people saying, well, I don't know what to do because one day it's this and one day it's that. And a lot are saying it's mixed messaging. And, and, and of course, there is some of that. But as you mentioned, I think a lot of it is it just keeps evolving. So what doctors or officials may have said a week ago may be different the following week as these running tests and data is collected. Uh, and that's something the public has to keep in mind is uh, there is no one-size-fits-all, and this will continue to change as we work our way through it. Absolutely. Well said. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you about a third wave because again there was chatter when modeling and projections came out a few weeks ago uh, that we were heading for uh, a third wave that we had to be careful as we head into March uh, lots of chatter of vaccine this week so there's been less of that although we are starting to hear more and more of those concerns in regard to the latter part of March. Anything you can shed light on there? How concerned are you uh, about, obviously, the trajectory of, of the virus or the variants and, and, and that of the vaccine arriving, interjecting? Where, where do you see us as far as that third wave? With a lot of these models for vaccines and, and with the models about how this uh, pandemic will progress and infection rate, we have to remember that they're trying to predict behavior of people. And that's no easy task. So these folks are doing an incredibly difficult job and they're doing it well. Now, one of the ways that we can help make their life very easy is to just reduce the number of viral replications that happen. Every time you're infected, the virus goes inside of you and it starts making more copies of itself. Every time it makes a copy, there's a chance that it can mutate. And if those mutations are favorable, then they will spread. And then we'll get new variants arising. So if we can all get vaccinated, it doesn't matter which one you get. Anyone, as long as you get vaccinated, then you will be slowing down viral replication and not giving this virus a chance to change. And then that makes our vaccines more effective. So really, when it comes to the choice, I want the Moderna, I want the BioNTech vaccine or whatever, it, it doesn't really matter. As long as everybody's getting something, we can control this and then hopefully make this potential of a third wave go away. And that's really what we're doing. So with this new vaccine coming in and the opportunity to vaccinate even more people, it's going to help. Every bit helps. Because remember, we're, our goal is to stop this replication. And our second goal is to reduce severity of disease. And then ultimately, these will all help reduce death. So obviously, the longer we wait to vaccinate, the more chance there are of variants. Right. Especially so, in the case, that's the case where people get infected as well. So if you're practicing social distancing and wearing a mask, then you're not likely to get you know, infected. But if you're out there without physical barriers like a mask on, then you can be contributing to this replication problem. 
obviously the chatter of late because of the lack of supply uh, that has been the issue Canada getting uh, vaccines into the country so they can be put into arms uh, because we have been discussing the supply we haven't spent a lot of time discussing hesitancy which is what happens when there's lots of vaccine and there's nothing left between you and the vaccination except your decision to get it how concerned are you about hesitancy once we do start mass vaccinations I think there's always a component of that and we have to be wary of that and it's never treat it as a combative conversation. This is the kind of thing where you need to, if you decide to take the vaccine, you can let people, especially in your family who might not be interested in, let them know your reasons for taking it. I want to be protected. I want to keep you protected. I have kids that I want to keep protected. Those are my reasons for taking this. And also, it's it's really interesting that how, how easy all of this data on safety is available, not just from the manufacturers, but they will point you to you know, publications that are out there that have been reviewed by peers and you can trust. You can look at that and, and feel better about it. You can talk to your doctor about it. And I think we have to look at this. Health Canada is made up of Canadians and no Canadian wants to be stuck indoors for the rest of forever. We all want to get out there, and they're doing their best to make sure that we are staying protected, and they are staying protected. We're all in the same boat. So no one's trying to make a call that's going to damage you in the long term. They have a very difficult job of making sure you're protected and healthy. And let's also get into the mindset of what they're doing, because they're trying to do what is best for us and we need to recognize that we're all in this together. So I, I would start those hesitancy conversations like that. And also, these vaccines, they're part of the hesitancy is that they seem new and they seem rushed. Yeah. The time scale of these things are not really rushed. We're just looking at the data sooner. We're just interpreting it sooner. We're not waiting as, as long as we used to. So things are happening appropriately. We're just paying attention much more in real time now. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is these aren't necessarily new technologies. These have actually, of all these technologies, all the different types of vaccines, they've been in use or in clinical trial in one form or another for years and years. So they're not new to the people developing vaccines. They are newer to the general public. And, and with that, so there's not, we're not cavalier about these sorts of things. So that, that, I hope, can give people a bit more context on hesitancy. And from the perspective, this is new. No one really knows what's happening. You know, the stuff's been seen, for example, in cancer vaccine trials and that sort of thing where we're trying to protect against completely different diseases. So these are things that you can, again, it, it doesn't take much. You can actually look this stuff up, and it's really interesting to read about it and give yourself more confidence. Well said. Dr. Omar Khan has been with us, assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. Take care. Bye, everybody. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A growing number of Canadians uh, are, are concerned about what is happening and where we are in regard to vaccinating uh, the Canadian population still sitting below 40th, I think, in the world as far as uh, where we are. Uh, lots of promises of vaccines that are coming. But again, uh, none of the real mass vaccination going on that uh, that uh, we are certainly seeing in other countries, uh, specifically south of the border, who were in such bad shape uh you know, just even six months ago, have now uh, drastically turned the corner and are vaccinating uh, uh, more in one day than than Canada has done total. Uh, so obviously, this is something that is uh, is concerning Canadians. And as the Prime Minister gets ready to call an election and try to get uh, his majority, a growing number of Canadians say that uh, the Prime Minister is not doing a good job, is doing a bad job on vaccine rollout. Uh, even as the pace quickens, it'll be interesting to see if when an election is called, if, and some are saying uh, in and around the June, spring, late spring uh, timeline, uh, is that enough? And, and, you know, as vaccinations arrive, more vaccinations arrive uh, at the beginning of, of Q2, uh, is that enough to make Canadians forget about what is happening now and where we are now? Uh, despite the good news, again, we're hearing today about Johnson & Johnson, we're still talking about uh, late summer, fall delivery dates. Let's bring in John Wright. Uh, Maru, public opinion, he is the executive vice president there. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. God, yeah, it's, um, and I don't mean to scoop you because it's just been announced, but the poll came out uh, this morning in the newspapers. You and I were booked to talk about it, and the Prime Minister has just now indicated that Pfizer has moved up their dates to move in millions of uh, new doses by May. So it, what this does is uh, not only show that you and I were prescient in pressing the Prime Minister because Obviously, our intervention has caused that to take place, of course. Uh, But what it really speaks to is that this is an evolving story. People across this country have only been focused on one thing, at least 65% of them who are concerned that they might catch this virus, have been focused on one thing, and that is getting a jab in the arm. And when you haven't got anything in the supply pipe, um, and frankly, the provinces then depend on that in order for you to get it, then you become you know, the the person who is judged to be doing either a good job or bad job the most because you depend on that. So up to this point, anyways, uh, we've seen um, the support for the prime minister and just getting the vaccines to us plummet uh, down to about 43%. It was about 40% a week ago before I updated it. Um, so it, it's the sort of thing that will hang over his head, not just because it's a vaccine issue, but because... Many Canadians will see this as a competency issue, and it's kind of like if you can, if this is what happens on this file, could it extend to other files as well? Uh, the Prime Minister has spent the last several months talking about how many they have procured his portfolio per se, and and how many you know we've got enough to vaccinate the entire population a bazillion times over, uh, and, and again kept selling September. We'll have everybody vaccinated by by the end of September. Uh, obviously, as things loosen up around the world, we're going to see most likely you know uh, better to. Uh, to uh, under promise and, and you know over deliver and under promise, 
Um, so even if these do get bumped up from, say, late uh, summer or, or fall till, you know, to as you're saying, May with the new arrivals, is, is, is that enough for, and, and there we go around the spring election, these all arrive in May, everybody's happy, is that enough to make people forget about what has been happening January, February, March, and April? Well, it depends on where you need the votes. I mean, I've been doing polling on, on things across the country for close to 30 years, and that the political dynamic has changed in terms of its geography. So what you really look at right now is uh, whether or not the impact can be felt by people who might switch from the liberals to the conservatives in the 905 belt, and in that belt that comes down the highway just past Hamilton into London. You know, depending upon how that belt goes determines the country because you know toronto the greater toronto area is primarily liberal uh, but you've got this band around it and then running down into southwestern ontario which if the tuning fork hits the right way whoever wins the most votes in that corridor uh, wins the election it used to be that you'd have to cobble together different provinces but because of the dynamics in how people vote um, particularly now with the resurgence of the bloc in quebec um, it really takes that. So the real question will be not whether or not Albertans who don't like the prime minister to begin with and see this as a massive confirmation of everything that they've been thinking or of a group of liberals in Atlantic Canada who are not suffering from COVID the same way the rest of us are and think that the federal government is fantastic. The question comes down to whether or not those in the 905 in that corridor past Hamilton down to London is really going to be, uh, I'm sorry, across to London, is really going to be the determinant as to where um, the votes come from. So that, that 401 corridor out to you and down into southwestern Ontario become really critical things. So what has changed public opinion here? Because, again, at the beginning of all of this, uh, the Prime Minister had favorable numbers, still does, have favorable numbers on how uh, he has handled this. Uh, obviously, lots of aid has been delivered out, uh, handed out, rather. Um, you know, but now we're, we're starting to see the tide change. What, what is, what's triggering Canadians' change of attitude here? Is it watching the U.S. go from zero to 100 in no time? Is it watching us fall to below 40th in the world? What, what, what's, where's the turning point here? It's failed expectations. I mean, the Prime Minister came out and said, you know, we've got millions and millions prescribed. I think, you know, we don't know what's in the contract. We don't know whether or not the scenario was such that Health Canada made the deal with the Chinese, that the political dealings there were because we have two people kept hostage there. Like, who knows? But the Chinese um, said no to it, which means that perhaps we had to go out to all those other makers of the vaccines and say, look, we can't buy you know, then for sure, but we can get in line, but we'll pay you more for them when they come. So they go out and they get them from everywhere else. I mean, that seems to be a bit of a plausible circumstance. So the expectations were politically, don't worry, we'll take care of you. We have millions of them. We're, we're the most prescribed in the world to this. But it really comes down to where's the beef. So that when you're absolutely right, when you start looking next door, and last week we had close to 24% of the entire American population done, and we're sitting at just about 4.7%. I mean, the reality is you go, what's wrong with this picture? So I think the issue is one of failed expectations. 
on behalf of how Canadians are looking at this. And I think that's been the biggest impact on the Prime Minister's, not not only on this file, but also his overall popularity has gone down because people were expecting it, and it just hasn't materialized. Yeah, and in Canada, hit something like 70,000, 77,000 people vaccinated yesterday. And you think about that across the country, 70, like only 77,000 people. I mean, that's, that's going to take forever. Um, what, how are Canadians feeling about, uh, the Prime Minister relying on COVAX for, uh, for vaccination? Obviously, COVAX, uh, uh, a fund which everybody puts money into for vaccines for, uh, less developed countries. Look, if you simply went out and asked people about it, the vast majority of people in this country wouldn't know about it. I mean, yeah. if you explain it to them, they are offended by the fact that you are actually dipping into a vat of vaccines that were primarily meant, in their view, for third world countries. But the prime minister has said, look, you know, we, we have access to that, too. So if you explain it to people enough, they're offended by it. The fact is that they don't understand um, or they don't know that much about it. So they just take from what the prime minister is saying and what's being literally said out in the media, and that is we've got more vaccines than anywhere in the world, and everybody's going to be looked after by September. But the, the question is, when you have delays and a series of other things, whether you're telling the truth or whether you're managing it badly. And those are the two things that come back to haunt somebody in a political campaign. So, again, going back to your original premise, if there is the hope that the Liberals have for an election campaign in June, we still even need to be challenged because we're all going to have to go to the voting booths during a COVID, you know, people still having COVID. And like, you know, Newfoundland, they had great problems in the election. If they go, will people remember that this was part of it? Likely. But the most important people that it affects are going to be people who are switchers. And, and that's where I think the conservatives are also going to bear down in about the issue of competency and trust. You brought up election. Is there a sweet spot here uh, when all of these arrive, uh, you know, whether it's spring, summer, fall, what, I guess it won't be summer, but fall. Um, is there a sweet spot here for the liberals? Well, in any election campaign, you know, the leader and his campaign are defined by what I call a ballot question. Because we all go to um, the ballot box, we mark an X, but what are we marking it for? Sometimes we're marking it against the other candidate, and we bite our tongue. Other times it's on a specific policy, and we know what those policies are with the liberals. Gun control, as we've seen them raise in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. The middle class, which the finance minister, deputy premier, prime minister, is now talking about suddenly. Um, it's talked about in terms of the environment, which now is you know, moving up uh, the scale of rhetoric. So those are classic liberal pieces. And the other side is what is the uh, conservative piece to all this we don't know. So again, each party is defined by a set of principles that then go into a ballot question. And this will be part of it. This will be you know, the conservatives basically say, look, they can't manage this. You can't trust them. It's a competency issue. And it's the same with them on all of these other topics. They, they say they're big talkers, but they don't bring stuff in. How can you trust them? On the other hand, if we, in fact, have suitable vaccinations um, underway and we have a lot of doses coming in the country, the prime minister may be able to say, look, you know, almost mission accomplished. 
you know, they can say whatever they want, but I'm still going to be able to make sure that you're all vaccinated by September. And I said that was the case. So you can see how that can be portrayed both ways. And you can see how, you know, more local community reasons for going to the polls matter more than they do in the national context. So, again, I think this is an item that's going to stick. I don't know yet how it's going to factor into the overall campaigns and how it's going to make Canadians reflect on their vote in the ballot box. Uh, what about a uh, difference in opinion between the federal government and provincial governments? Uh, there's times when various uh, others have stepped ahead of, of, of each. Um, now, as we find ourselves in a short supply of vaccine uh, and the provinces find themselves having to figure out distribution systems with a very inconsistent supply, that the provinces are taking a bit of a heat now, especially uh, Ontario. It, it, it surprises me in a sense that we're more concerned about that at this point than we are we're almost more critical of the provinces than we are of the federal government who's hasn't delivered the vaccine depends on where you are in the country i mean and and again it's all about expectations i think a couple of months ago in ontario you would have expected that they would have a plan together what the government announced just a couple weeks ago was uh, rather than you know here's the plan with general hillier and you're going to do x y and z it was kind of like we've got what is it, 34 health um, groups close to the ground, let them figure it out. So there's some confusion on that. We also can't take away the fact that people are really upset about that they've been locked down for so long. And they wonder why is it that other parts of the country can do things that we can't. There's never been a consistency, Scott, as you know, across the board. We, We do things differently in Ontario than they do in British Columbia with the same things, you know, that we're aware Mm -hmm. of. I think after being locked down for 102 days, I think it is today, people in Ontario are getting a little concerned. It less so, obviously, in the north and in more rural areas, but in cities where they need, you know, um, the vaccines and, and more of a plan, they're, they're upset. So I think that there's heat there, but I think there was a request yesterday from the provincial governments for the federal government to pony up something like $28 billion for the health care system in the upcoming budget, which will be the showcase for an election. I think the real issue that we're missing here and is yet to come and maybe prompting the prime minister to go early rather than late is you and I and everyone on this radio station know that there's going to be a reckoning. There are huge deficits in cities yeah. and in the province, and that's just not being talked about yet. But the question in everybody's minds will be, how are we going to solve this, even if the feds keep doling out the money and it keeps you know, digging ourselves into a hole? How is that going to help us get back on our feet? So I think part of this is the recovery, but the other part is the reckoning. And I don't think we've come to that part. And I think the federal government will want to have an election before we even start that process. Yeah, good point. Um, so you brought up uh, the, the premiers yesterday. We covered that press conference live. All the premiers in, or most of the premiers in Canada uh, asking uh, a virtual press conference, asking the feds for more uh, um, transfer payments for health care, uh, pushing health care uh, to the front of his election platform. And again, as you mentioned, we've heard a couple of election style promises and things from uh, the prime minister, including gun control and, and certainly climate change, climate change, climate change. 
But is this going to 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 change his agenda when at the end of the day, what Canadians are really concerned about at this point is health care and security of it and, you know, long term care. And uh, then, as you mentioned, jobs in the economy and getting this back together. How does that fit with the more fashionable type of issues that the prime minister usually likes to run on, uh, like climate change, which are important, but certainly farther down the list, I'm guessing, than than he feels most Canadians uh, believe? Well, the first thing is that we've had a history in this country, as you know, of provincial premiers demanding more money for health care. I mean, they demanded yeah. on all kinds of things, but health care has been there. Stephen Harper solved this for his time frame when he sent Jim Flaherty out to basically say to the provinces, I'm going to give you 6% every year. And that's it. Thanks very much. Goodbye. And never took another call on the issue from the premiers. He said, you know, we're giving you this so that the prime minister could go out and he could go out and say, we're giving more money to the provinces now than we've ever done before. Who knows? It may come down to that. Except that this is a federal government which sees, you know, apparently no problem in spending billions and billions and billions of dollars. Here's what can happen, though. Health care will clearly play a role in the election campaign because it is what it is today. And who runs a better chance of, of riding on that is, in fact, the Liberals, because they juxtapose it and say, look, you know, we're more likely to give you money and to embrace the Health Act and look after all Canadians, whereas the guys on the other side of the aisle are more likely to embrace private sector reform, and yeah. they're going to be stingy with you. You know, Aaron O'Toole is going to come back and say, look, we need a, a vibrant economy. We, you know, we've got to have more jobs, and that's where people's minds are at. And we have to produce revenue to fill those holes so we can have everything that we want. You can see this lining up the way they are. So despite some pitfalls right now, one side can say it's all about competency and you can't believe them. On the other side, they can say, look, we're just doing our job. We're representing Canadians. And health care is a part of a package that when you go to vote, that's what you're also voting on for us. So you can see how it can play out both ways. Um, and you know, I don't doubt that health care will be there. But I think the other issues are going to play out uh, even more so, and that is the typical brand that the Liberals bring out over the last three election campaigns, which healthcare is part of it, but being part of the middle class and trusting that they can govern the country better than the other guys, I think that's kind of where it's going to be. John Wright's been with us, Executive Vice President, Maru, uh, Maru Public Opinion. John, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Does anybody know what line five is? Do you know what line five is? Anybody raise your hands if you know what line five is. Uh, this is a very important pipeline in southern Ontario, and it, um, it's been in operation for a long time, heading down into Michigan. And the Michigan governor, uh, governor there is talking about shutting her down. And the headline is, Canada is fighting on every front to keep Line 5, the Line 5 pipeline open, says uh, Seamus O'Regan. Uh, I'm not sure how confident Dan McTagg is in all of this. Uh, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former uh, Liberal MP, he is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, Good to be here, Scott. Thank you. So what do you think Mr. O'Regan is doing uh, as far as uh, whatever measures are needed to keep this open? Are you confident? Uh, <laughs> I'm hopeful. I'm not so sure I'm confident. Uh, Scott, when you and I talked about this over a week and a half ago, I still hadn't received that many uh, interesting calls from anyone. It's almost as if this is a non-issue uh, or perhaps wishful thinking by so many of us who've been led to this idea that we can somehow do without pipelines. 
But this one is critical, uh, and it really means it's shut down, which uh, the governor of, uh, of Michigan is proceeding with on May the 13th. Uh, it will fall like the proverbial guillotine on all of our fuels. And here I'm not referring simply to diesel and gasoline, but of course, all of the jet fuel uh, that is produced for instance for Toronto International Airport. I would think there's a small amount of that that also feeds uh, the Hamilton uh, airport here as well. And so for that reason alone, uh, this is a very serious matter. Uh, I'm not so sure the federal government has been, uh, quote unquote, seized of this. And that's simply because they, uh, if you look at the same minister in his, uh, his social media of late, it's been about promoting all sorts of green, wonderful technologies rather than dealing with the more imminent danger at hand, which is what happens when you have no fossil fuels, no hydrocarbons, no petrochemicals and certainly no petroleum products on which to run your economy. And it's not just, of course, Ontario. We're talking Quebec and even the Maritimes as far as propane is concerned. So explain to everybody what Line 5 is. Now, this is not a new pipeline. This has been something that's been there for a while. Give us a little backstory here. Tell us about this pipeline. Sure. Uh, Line 5 supplies almost all of the oil needed for refineries here in Ontario, uh, including the refinery in, uh, in, uh, in Montreal, one of two refineries for all of Quebec. Uh, it re, it's also supplies uh, the lion's share of oil for two refineries in Ohio and one in Michigan itself. So pretty significant and uh, important piece of infrastructure. Uh, not only is the line one, but it's actually two lines. One has carries oil, and that is to say light, sweet oil. Yes, we produce that in Canada, believe it or not, folks. It's not about heavy oil, which, of course, the Americans love. Uh, it's also about light, uh, sweet uh, crude, which comes all the way from Alberta, dips down south uh, from Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and through the United States, and then makes its way across the Straits of Mackinac, which separate uh, not only Canada, the United States, but also, more importantly, uh, Lake Michigan from Lake Huron. That pipeline has been in place since 1953, so 67, 68 years, uh, has never had an in- incident or issue that uh, caused it to leak. Yes, we have leaky pipelines, but certainly not the ones that under that go under the strait. The company which owns it now uh, is uh, none other than Canadian uh, uh, Enbridge. And Enbridge, of course, has not only proposed but received approval for building an even deeper pipeline uh, to replace the one that's there, uh, about 20, 30 feet well under the uh, the floor of the bed of that uh, that, uh, that strait, the Strait of Mackinac. So Americans are saying, and certainly Michigan's argument is, you know, you had a leak on a previous line many years ago at Kalamazoo, and that was Enbridge's fault. Uh, what's to stop this from happening again? And so Enbridge has uh, devoted a half a billion dollars to redo that line, even though there's never been an issue. Uh, and uh, that is where the governor of Michigan has said, we don't want this pipeline. Uh, we're going to shut it down. Uh, you better find an alternative. And of course, uh, why would the governor not be interested in the pipeline if, in fact, Enbridge is going to do any work to it that would alleviate their concerns? Well, she is following the advice of her attorney general's ground since 2012 and has been working behind the scenes to shut this pipeline. They've also organized themselves very well with the uh, pro- pipeline protesters across the country. We know it's a very strong element within the Biden administration. Uh, she uh, occupies a very important role. I think she's vice chair of the Democratic Committee. Uh, they're doing this simply because they want to send a message. And it's probably easier for Michiganians to get alternative supplies with a massive number of pipelines that have been built down there while taking a, you know, a broadside hit, uh, which will affect Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes economy. So for them, there is, uh, there is significant uh, implications. 
but uh, far more for Ontario and Quebec than there is for Michigan. As I said, there are all, there are other alternatives in terms of pipelines. Uh, it won't be easy, uh, but she wants to satisfy a particular constituency, a particular militant green constituency, at the very time which Americans today are learning what it's all about now that they are no longer energy self-sufficient, that they are no longer uh, this year going to be net exporters of oil, they're going to be net importers of oil. The timing couldn't be worse. And uh, Scott, don't take my word for it. We're at 66 bucks a barrel. Three weeks ago, we were at 53, 54. Uh, by the way, you're going to see a three cent a liter jump here in the hammer on uh, on Sunday. But I digress. This is a significant issue. It'll probably bring Ontario's economy literally to its knees. And that's why I think the federal government has finally decided to wake up, along with a few other woke media types. So what can the federal government do now, and, and how do they ride this fence? Because, you know, uh, this government seems to be uh, famous for uh, saying they're going to do something and then shrug their shoulders and, and when something slips through their hands and, and, and just say, well, we tried, and that's where they are. Uh, what's to stop uh, uh, Mr. O'Regan from taking the same position on Line 5 as, uh, as the Prime Minister did on Keystone? Well, I think it's kind of ironic uh, they've invited this constituency. This is part of the core of their whole net zero gang. They want to uh, shut down pipelines. I can imar- I imagine Americans saying, listen, <laughs> you're not happy with uh, us shutting down a pipeline that you desperately need, but you didn't seem to have a problem with energy use. You didn't have a problem with Northern Gateway, and you had to spend, uh, you know, four and a half billion bucks just to buy another pipeline uh, to the Trans Mountain. I won't go down that road, but it's important for people to understand you can't have the face of Janus. You can't be all things to all people. And frankly, the liberals either have to make their mind up, either do your business or get off the pot, because frankly, they've been currying favor uh, with uh, the anti-pipeline gangs uh, for the past several years. And now those proverbial chickens are coming home to roost, and it's going to hurt the Canadian economy. It's going to damage uh, and possibly shut down pretty much everything we do here in Ontario. As I said earlier, uh, you know, we're looking at, and I think you and I discussed this last time, uh, Scott, we talked about this two weeks ago. We're looking at 90 to $1.20. 90 cents to $1.20 would be the easy hit if you can find fuel. We're going to have to go into emergency management. And I'm sorry, there just aren't enough ships and rail. We're going to truck this stuff from Alberta. You're looking at 2,500, 2,600 trucks per day. You're looking at uh, seven, 800 rail cars per day just to make up the difference. It can't be done logistically in such a short time frame. And so the fact that the government only really started to pay any attention to this uh, mid-January, so month, six weeks ago, two months after the decision was made uh, by the uh, governor of uh, Michigan to shut this thing down, should be frightening and alarming in and of itself. This will have significant economic consequences. It will also have major political consequences for our liberals as they plan to have a campaign around the same time. That was exactly my next question, Dan. How does this fit in with the spring election for uh, the prime minister, who's desperately trying to get a, a majority here, find a sweet spot to, to, to try to get a majority? Uh, will he save this in the end? And, the, you know, there's a, a notch in his cap for the election? <laughs> We've destroyed Keystone XL. That's worth maybe $50, $60 billion to the Canadian economy. We've got no way of knowing whether or not we'll get exemptions on the Buy American. And we now see more examples of the, of the American Biden administration moving uh, you know, at, uh, at breakneck speed uh, to ensure that the Line 3, another line, by the way, an important one that's been approved by both sides, continues these long legal protests. Uh, the Prime Minister has not sat down with Mr. Biden and said, listen, it's in the interest of your country as much as ours to keep energy security. That's not the issue anymore. It's all about net trendy zero. And by the way, that's trillions of dollars of money this country doesn't have. 
For Canada, the stakes are much higher, not just with line five during you know a potential election. Our number one generator of wealth in this country is not the automotive sector, it's not the agricultural sector, it's not the steel industry, it's oil and gas. And we have done more to basically send mixed messages to the world to how we're going to really confine and constrict and throttle this industry to our detriment. So for the Americans, I guess their response is, we're not here to sell your wheat or your oil. There you go. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, Canada Canada fighting on every front, says Seamus O'Regan, to keep uh, Line 5, the pipeline, open. Uh, I'm not sure how they can say all that with a straight face. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Have a great weekend, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.